Hi, my name is Margie Krakowski with Wright Harima Architects. I'm the chair of programs along with Megan Marshall of Jones Lang LaSalle and Tony Smaniato of Studley. We are always constantly striving to bring you the best in class programs and speakers. In July, we have Cornet Global's Tim Venable coming in from Atlanta to present the bold statements on enterprise leadership, which have emerged from Cornet's most ambitious research initiative, Corporate Real Estate 2020. Expert panelists from Tyco, Honeywell, and AT&T will be leading a highly interactive session. There is no program in August, but we will be back in September with our Tales from the Trenches series, focusing on doing business globally, and our speakers from Northern Trust, Mace Group, Motorola, DTZ, and HOK will share their challenges and successes on global real estate issues. Uh, today's program is being podcast and posted to the Cornet website. If you have your MCR, you receive one continuing education credit for each luncheon you attend. There is a sign-up sheet by the registration desk and see Beth or Chris to get your credits. Uh, we encourage your feedback at the end of the program and there will be a hard copy survey passed around at the end. Now today's topic, the intersection of branding and real estate. We are lucky to have our panelists, all of them, fly in to, to be with us today. Each distinguished speaker, speaker is a thought leader amongst their peers. We have Adam Cook, Vice President with Project and Development Services Group and Business Lead for On Brand, Jones Lang LaSalle's Brand Implementation Program Management Group. His team is responsible for managing the global delivery of new brand launches across real estate portfolios. We have Julie Seitz, Director of Workplace 2020 with the Coca-Cola Company. Julie has been with Coca-Cola for 16 years, and in her newest role as Director of Workplace 2020, she is leading a team to reimagine and renovate Coca-Cola Atlanta headquarters campus into a state-of-the-art workplace that reflects the vibrancy and integrity of the world's best-loved brands. Mary Frances McGinnis, Vice President, Brand and Marketing Communications with NII Holdings, the wireless telecommunications company known as Nextel in Latin America. She has been with NII in this capacity for five years and in the marketing strategy and branding at Nextel and MCI Communications for 12 years. And finally, Alexis Katz, Principal Design Manager with P&G Brand Environments at Procter & Gamble. For the past three years, Alexis has led the environmental design vision for the Procter & Gamble corporate brand. This encompasses global housing projects, P&G brand initiatives, and most recently, the interior styling for the Vancouver and London Olympics. Uh, go ahead, Adam. Oh, party foul already. <laughs> That's okay, I'm good on my feet. Welcome, welcome, good afternoon. We're really glad that you could all join us today. Um, we know that uh, today and our topic can sometimes be controversial, can sometimes be uh, interesting, and is always brought with many, many questions. Um, so we appreciate you being here. Um, I get the unique advantage being at a real estate firm and working in this area we call branding. The unique advantage is if anyone ever comes to me and asks me to do something, I can always say, uh, I'm the branding guy, I don't do that. Well, that's a benefit on some sides. The unique part about my job is also that I'm the branding guy at a real estate firm. And I run a team of people focused on branding initiatives. Traditionally in real estate, we live in this mentality at a large 
level of you buy it, you build it, you manage it. And for most corporate real estate executives, that is the world we live in. Whether you're buying or leasing, you know, whether you're designing, whether you're building out existing space. And then over the last 10 to 15 years, new challenges started to come across our plate. Sustainability grew with leaps and bounds, and the great cost-cutting initiatives changed how we do business everywhere. So what's that next challenge for the corporate real estate executive and for our industry at whole? As I see it, it's stepping up to the plate in the world of brand, and I've been very privileged for the last 10 years to work for a real estate firm that is focused on that. And we brought today three great speakers to share with you some of their experiences, some of their progress, and some of the tactics they use within their organization to promote the concept of brand across the real estate portfolio and to use real estate as a vehicle for branding. A lot of times when I sit down with my clients because they're from such diversified areas of the business, I like to do a little marketing 101. We're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but if you've never sat through a marketing class, here's the magic, folks. It's all up on the screen. Marketing stems out of the core competency for an organization, and from that, you choose your corporate objective. From that, you derive a marketing objective. Out of there falls your positioning, your segmentation, and your target market. And most importantly, at the end of this, if you do it all right, you're gonna get your four Ps. So the four Ps of any marketing program are your product, your promotion, your place, and your price. When you really get to thinking about this, this really does translate to what we do in real estate every single day. We still focus on that core competence. We still have corporate objectives, which translate into real estate objectives. We definitely have positioning. We definitely segment our customers. And finally, there's a target market. The main difference when it comes down to real estate is the four Ps, which in real estate are price, 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 price. So when we're faced with that challenge, how do we devote resources? How do we devote energy? Why do we devote resources and energy to something such as brand? Something that can be so tangible in some regards, but when you attach it or approach it from some standpoints, it almost seems unattainable, undefinable, and something that you certainly can't put in front of your CFO and ask for a lot of money for. Today, we hope that we'll address some of these concerns and show you some ways to do that, sharing the real experience of our speakers today. So as I said, in the world of corporate real estate, it's all about our, our four uh, Ps, but also our four Rs, reduction, cost reduction, square foot reduction, headcount reductions, occupancy reductions. As a corporate real estate executive, it might feel at the end of the day, your entire job is to slash, to cut, to remove, less, 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 less. Part of the great opportunities with brand is it's really an opportunity to do more. It's an opportunity to integrate up to the business, to be an integral value add component, and to really bring that value and quantify it for the business and deliver for the business. It's an opportunity to change from a service department to a strategic department that is driving the growth and strategy of your company. How do we do this? Well, thankfully, or luckily for you, I've drawn a map for you. When you're finding value in the real estate world, you have to go some ways past the wise man's hut, through the jungle, around the holes, and somewhere, if you're lucky, between the unlucky lagoon and the cave of secrets, you will find that magic place of value and brand. 
There's no exact map or no exact plan for everybody, but there is a process and there are amazing success stories. If you can take those processes and use those success stories to chart your path, somehow you can get down there underneath the unlucky lagoon, uh, just above the Cave of Secrets, as I mentioned. One of the most important things when you're doing this is how to measure it. We're always asked to measure things in terms of cost of square foot, budgets, things of that nature. When you are attaching brand onto a project, there's new metrics, new dimensions, and new types of measurements that we want to use. One of my favorite things about this illustration is that it's obviously the progression of appetites, and it begins with the child going to the father figure, and somewhere between the father and the horse is the mother's appetite. Beyond that, it also introduces a new and innovative way to approach measuring, and that's one of the things we'll talk about as well during our discussions today. You need a new set of metrics, a new set of tools to be successful, to drive performance, and to inspire a brand-based culture throughout your real estate and throughout your business as a whole. Finally, for those of you who are at Cornet, we should have played a drinking game. Every time you heard millennial, you should have taken a swig of your cocktail, and I bet I bet you would have been a little more inebriated than you were over the last few days. So for those of you who go next year, take up my drinking game. Every time Millennial comes up in any type of a furniture vendor setting, make sure you take a swig of your cocktail for me. I'll appreciate it very much. We live in this world where we have this great fear of this new generation of workforce. They want workstations with treadmills, will only work on iPads, and I'm pretty sure they're going to eat the flesh off of her bones, or at least that's the way it's been presented to us. At Neocon, I'm sure you learned a lot about how they work, what they want to do when they're working, when they work, and where they work. And that's all great, but that is surface level intuition. Branding allows you an opportunity to learn why people work. And people don't show up to work because of their workstation. People show up to work because they're proud of what their company stands for. People show up to work and they stay there and they promote the brand because they're inspired by it. And that's what we're asking you to do. In your positions within real estate, you can drive that type of pride and ownership of the brand. And that's where the real opportunity and value lies. So finally, uh, I'm gonna turn it over to our speakers in just a minute here, but what we really want to do is challenge you within your organization, within your business, within your circles of influence is to make that leap. Make that commitment to making brand a part of the way you do business. And I'm gonna turn it over to some expert speakers on the fact uh, from Coca-Cola, NII, and Procter and & Gamble to do just that for us. So with no further ado, ado I'd like to introduce uh, Julie Seitz. Julie? Well, I'm, can everybody hear me? Oh, you stole my clicker, thanks. I'm not much of a podium person, so I'm gonna get out and we're gonna try to talk about some of this. So thanks for having me. I'm from uh, the South, I'm from Atlanta, uh, native Southerner, and I've been at Coke 16 years, uh, worked for IBM prior to that. The um, clicker, clicker. So we have developed a program we're calling Workplace 2020, not a uh, unique name, that, that, that name and those and that year of 2020 is, is uh, being used in lots of circles these days, right? Um, but we have developed um, kind of an approach. Uh, yes, we are Coca-Cola. Yes, we have a big brand, but we've never really leveraged branding and real estate until now. 
even though we're, we have offices in 206 countries, huge amounts of real estate around the world, uh, we've never managed, we don't manage our real estate centrally, which is kind of unusual for a company our size. We, we are very decentralized in how we manage real estate. We let each um, manager in all the different countries around the world run their Coca-Cola business as they see fit. And they have the full P&L, everything from real estate to manufacturing to distribution, truck fleet, everything they make the decisions on unique to that country. Uh, we roll out big global marketing plans around the world, but they take them. If you're, if you're the uh, Coca-Cola leader in Brazil, you're the Coca-Cola leader in Greece or China, you take those and you roll out those marketing plans and use guidelines from corporate, but then uh, create your own advertising and everything around the world. And that's worked for us for a long time, 126 years old this year. And in real estate, we have never really put all those puzzle pieces together before. But um, what happened along the way is I came in, I've been in the company a long time, but I'm a sales marketing background person. And I joined real estate uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, and now I'm the head of workplace, and I'm not the head of real estate at the Coca-Cola company. Our head of real estate um, focuses on leases and buying and selling, but doesn't think about really transformations and how you rebuild the workplace, and that's what I'm doing. Uh, so I've come from a, um, unusually come from the marketing side of the business to now focus solely on workplace. And I've been out, uh, I've seen 52 campuses in the last 18 months around the country and in China, uh, various, various companies to see what everybody's doing, studied workplace every which way I can uh, to learn everything about it. So sales and marketing background, I've worked in supply chain, I worked on the Salt Lake Olympics leading the Olympic torch relay, done a lot of different things. And, and this is probably the most interesting, exciting job I've ever had. And any football, anybody football fan, I did go to the home of Refrigerator Perry for college. Um, I was there when he was there, actually, I'm giving away my age. Um, so Coca-Cola, our world headquarters, we have a campus of two million square feet. Um, we have about 500 visitors a day. That's a key piece of our plan. Does anybody have 500 visitors a day to their um, headquarters? It's a lot of people. And we've never really leveraged that. We've never said, gosh, couldn't those 500 people be like, a, like Ritz Carlton thinks about it? What does is, what is Ritz Carlton, what, is they, what do they hope to accomplish with every guest? Great experience. What else? They're going to tell somebody else? So they, they, want it, they want them to come guests for life. They want you to return over and over and over again. So when we think about it, gosh, 500 visitors a day, what if they had a fabulous branded experience when they came in and they go, wow, I get it. I get what Coca-Cola is about. I get where the company's trying to go. I get the feeling of the brand when I'm here. Let me go, could we, have, could we create 500 ambassadors a day that come to our world headquarters and talk about ourselves. And guess what? They don't need to see an advertisement on TV. They don't need to go to the Olympics. They don't need to go to a World Cup. They don't need to go to an NFL game or, or a Major League Baseball game to get it or, or even visit the supermarket to see what we're doing there. Could they get it from when they come in our headquarters? We have 5,000 workers there. We are densifying, uh, as, as most everybody else is, trying to go to about 6,000 um, on that campus, part of with a merger and just, just getting a little tighter. And we're seven, seven buildings on an urban uh, campus. 
So we're trying to double our business. Here's the other big piece of this. We're trying to double our business that's taken us 126 years to build by 2020. Think about that. We're going to double our business that has taken 126 years to build in the next eight years worldwide. So that's a huge um, vision that our chairman has set out. We have to answer to that vision. Part of that vision, um, you know, we started at seven servings a day. We do over three billion servings of a Coca-Cola-owned product around the world a day. We have 450 brands around the world. Coca-Cola is only one brand out of 450. So we can't brand 450 brands in our world headquarters. That would get crazy, right? Um, but we believe the design in our, of our workplace could much better reflect our values. So let's talk about, these probably will not be unfamiliar to you if you've ever seen a Coca-Cola advertisement or, um, or tasted the brand, but here are our values. They're very simple. Happiness. How many corporate headquarters or co corporate offices do you go in and feel happy? <laughs> not that many, and ours not today at all. So happiness, connection. This is back old, everybody, anybody remember this ad? Yep. Connection. So it goes back a long way. This was about 1972. Simple moments of pleasure and refreshment. How many offices feel like that? <laughs> but why can't we create one that feels like that? So we're not talking about plastering up brand signage around the place. We're talking about how do we create an environment that exhibits the values of our brand. Right? Apple Store. Let's talk about Apple Store a minute. What do you feel like? What does it feel like in an Apple store? What's the experience? Fun? Simple? Cool? Modern? Exciting? That reflects the DNA of the brand, doesn't it? We like to think about the brand. A brand has DNA. Every brand that you guys work with or work for has a DNA. You may never have thought about it that way, but what are the building blocks of that brand? What are the simple three or four things at the end of the day that that brand stands for? Apple's done a fabulous job of bringing their DNA of the brand to life in the store. And, and why don't we do that in our office space? A more sustainable future. We've la launched what we, we call the plant bottle. And we've now actually partnered with P&G and Heinz even on the use of that bottle um, and other products. So again, uh, that's a big piece of our DNA. So we've surveyed a lot of our employees, as many of you I'm sure have as well. And our employees tell us there's a big disconnect between what our brand feels like and looks like in the outside world on, on advertisements and, and many places where our brand comes to life and what it's like um, in our headquarters. <laughs> and this is kind of what you see. Gosh, it's a nice archival picture on the wall. But does this feel like happiness, moments of pleasure, the pause that refreshes? No. And why do we say this is OK? It's cheap. <laughs> so back to price. Back to price, 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 right? It's cheap, but I believe, and I've had this conversation with our CFO, I believe that when you reframe the conversation with the CFO to say, yeah, we can build you a bunch of this, but this doesn't work hard for us. 
It puts bodies in there and it puts people in seats, but what, it, but what is it, is it gonna deliver? Is it gonna help you double your business or is it gonna help you grow, grow the bottom line? It, you know, is it gonna create um, ambassadors for life? Is it really gonna grow the brand? And if you, and, and you know, we've gotten our head of advertising, we've gotten our, we have a chief kind of storyteller and marketing for the company. We've gotten all those folks involved in this. And, and you know, even our own marketing people, which are very good marketing people, because we can hire great marketing people because of who we are, they go, wow, I never really thought that our, our, our physical buildings is, is another medium for us. It's another marketing medium. And they're like, that is awesome, that's exciting. So now we've kind of gotten the whole marketing folks all sort of excited about this. My team laughs at me because I say lathered up a lot. I've got, we've got them all lathered up. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we've got a lot of work to do. We are on a mission to bring branding to life in the right way um, at our campus. And we do know a lot about building brands, but we've never ever applied it to real estate, and, but we are now. And so uh, we create for every one of our brands, all 450, what's called the Brand Value Architecture, BVA. And that lays out what the ambition of the brand, what value that brand is gonna bring to the equation, who their target audience is, who the competitive threats are, everything about a brand. Well, we're doing the, gonna do the same thing for Workplace 2020 and what branding, uh, build a BVA for uh, real estate. So, Let's look at what that might look like. So we have set forth on a pretty ambitious workplace brand vision, um, which is to help drive the achievement of this, of the company's 2020 vision of doubling uh, revenues by 2020. So you say, wow, how can workplace, how can we really be a big lever in doubling the company's revenue by 2020? But we, but we sat back and said, if we don't sign up for this, why do we matter? Why do we matter and why are we here? And then we're back to just building cheap, ugly space. You know, we're back to building this stuff, right? Um, so if we don't go to the CFO and the chairman and go, we are here to help you meet that 2020 vision and we the workplace people can do this because we're going to make all this space work harder. We're going to create ambassadors for life with our 500 guests today. We're going we're to turn 6,000 employees coming in here every day to say, well, I get it. I get how the outside matches the inside. The advertising matches what it feels like to work here. And, and then as we all are going to end up competing for those millennials, because we are, because it's a smaller, we have a sm smaller group to compete for, right? We need them to come in here and to come in all of our offices to go, I get who the company is, I get who the company stands for, I understand the values, this is where I wanna work. Because if we can't communicate to those, those new workers in the future about who we are as a brand, and the brand, and we, and we have integrity. Millennials are looking for integrity. I, I truly believe it, and, and that you know, all of us that think, oh, well, just look at our advertisements, or just look at what we do on the outside, and they come in and get a whole other story on the inside, they're not gonna work there. They're looking for the two to match. 
Um, that's why they like people like um, Zappos, um, Tom Shoes. That's why they like these companies that really, truly match on the inside and the outside, right? And they're, and they're you know, putting their money where their mouth is in terms of community um, donation and community outreach and those kind of things. You know, and it's funny, we, you know, in, in our headquarters, like most headquarters, we have 126 years of history. And then we have a huge aspiration of where we're trying to go with the business. You can walk through 2 million square feet in our business and you'd have no idea of where we've come from. You, you, would, you would not know where we're trying to go. We don't tell our story. You, you have to have somebody explain that to you. But why not? Why don't we use our space to tell that story? And, and even our employees, not just our guests, our employees, and remind them every day how their work matters and how it's connected. So our brand ambition is to create a connected, productive workplace that inspires collaboration, creativity, innovation, optimism, and action. And all that is, that statement's directly tied to what our brand is about. Um, product and brand equities. So again, you know, like purposeful integration of space systems and people celebrates the brand. We want our space to celebrate what the brand is about. So even so, let me give you some examples. Um, how, many, how many people have worked somewhere where a lot of people eat lunch at their desk or bring it back in a styrofoam container? Yes? Does that, does that inspire collaboration and people and connections across the company? No. So one thing we tried a couple weeks ago, we gave a significant discount at lunch to eat on a real plate. <laughs> we did. Cut your lunch is cheaper if you eat on a real plate and you eat in the dining area and stay and maybe talk to somebody you don't always talk to. The turnout was huge, huge. It's like, how easy was that? And so we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we're. Of course, we got to work that in the budget because you know you, get, you are giving a discount, but a lot of lot of ways to do the model. But we're going to keep doing that. Um, so an easy thing that things that even have to be about space doesn't have to be about construction. Um, I'm trying to think of another good example. So um, you know we're looking at doing things with the number one ingredient in all 450 Coca-Cola brands is water. The number one ingredient in every one of our products is water. So we kind of go hmm. I bet there's some cool things we could do with water that celebrates the brand. So look, really looking into your brand, what does it stand for? How could you bring it to life in a different way? Um, our brand, you know, we're, a lot, we're awful lot about active, healthy living at the Coca-Cola Company. And, you know, things we can do to um, inspire people to get outdoors. For example, in our master campus plan, we're going to move where all the dining um, occurs today. It all occurs on the second floor of the campus. And you go, why did they ever put it on the second floor? Because you can't go outside. Don't know why they put it on the second floor, but they did. So I went to the CFO with a big plan. I said, I want to I spend, spend the money. And yes, it's more money than it would be if we just renovated where it was. I want to move all the dining um, to the first floor. And I want to decentralize it because I want to create 
unique dining experiences, and I want every one of them connected to the outdoors. So every every dining location you can go eat outside, and that's you know getting people out, bringing the outside, melding it in with the inside. That's a lot of what. It, so that's another reflection of the brand, as an example. Um, consumer benefits. Um, so a consumer, so in, a, in the brand world, consumers on the outside. When you're talking about real estate, your, your consumer is the people that inhabit the space. So we want, so example, one, one aspect of our brand is people, it's a warm brand. People feel very welcome. They want to share it with other people. Sit down, let's have a Coke together. So we want to translate that. We want people to feel welcomed every day. We want to make life easy for them. We want people to say, I yes, I could work at home today, but you know what? This is such a great environment. I want to come work here today. We don't really believe in the Google model, which is on one side, which says no teleworking, no flex hours. Everybody show up at the same time every day because they believe in face-to-face -face collaboration leads to innovation. Got it. We also don't believe on the other extreme, which is Everybody go home, full-time teleworking, because we don't believe that works either. We're in the middle of, of both of those. We believe that, yes, you need to provide some of that flexibility for employees, but face-to-face -face collaboration is very important. So, so we can't, we can't be, um, think that people are going, you know, the days are over where people are gonna have to say, oh, well, I have to go to work today. I mean, those days are over. You, we've got to build environments where people want to come. So ultimately, what we're trying to create in our branding strategy is to, uh, Coca-Cola is a place where I can bring the best of who I am, deliver the optimism of brand Coca-Cola to people everywhere, and to join in concert with those who make the world better. That's our workplace vision. Quite different than a normal workplace vision, isn't it? But you can see how integrated the branding is into that. Our brand is all about optimism. It's all about bringing people together. And so, how you know, we're trying to translate that to our own employees. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so, I guess we're going to do we're going to do questions later, right? Okay. So, let me introduce uh, Mary Frances McGinnis from um, NLL, and she's going to talk to us about the Nextel brand in Latin America. Thanks, Julie. Um, my name is Mary Francis, and I'm from uh, NII Holdings. And I'm going to talk to you about um, a, a recent initiative that we've undertaken. Actually, we're still doing it, uh, where we essentially uh, dramatically built out our retail presence and rebranded our company under a brand lens. And just as a caveat, I am not a retail person. I'm a brand person, which is why I have Adam. Um, so we are, just to tell you who we are, we're NII Holdings in this country, and you might not be familiar with that name. Most people aren't. Essentially, it's Nextel in Latin America. It's a wireless telecommunications company. We're not Sprint Nextel. We license the trademark from um, Sprint Nextel. And we service Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Mexico, and Peru. We have over 15 million customers, and we have traditionally been a business-focused wireless telecommunications solution. And over the last two years, we were looking to evolve that strategy um, to target a larger market. 
And my history with the company, I have been with the company for a little over five years. And I was at, previously, I was at Nextel until they merged with Sprint for about eight years. And prior to that, I was at MCI Communications. So I've been in the telecom industry for, for quite a while now. So two years ago, we decided that we needed to expand beyond just the business set in Latin America and expand to high value consumers. If you're familiar with Latin America, um, there is a vast majority of people down there. A lot of them um, are using wireless telecommunications, although not all. And um, the vast majority of them are, are very low end in terms of revenue customers. But there is a substantial segment of people who are what we call high value. So the problem was that our old brand identity did not resonate well with those high value consumer segments. So we needed to evolve our brand to be a brand that consumers would choose um, while also protecting our core business customers. We also needed to build out a retail presence, which we essentially didn't have before, uh, so we could sell to those customers, those consumers. Um, and we needed to do that in a very short time frame. So we had all told about 11 months to do this. So um, just for, um, to set the context, you can see our old brand identity, which aside from being ugly, is also <laughs> different in every market. It was slightly different. Each market, um, we, were, we were a holding company traditionally, um, and so we didn't have a lot of um, direction or uh, we weren't very centralized up until about three years ago, in which now we are operating much more like an operating headquarters. So up until that time frame, our local markets could evolve the brand. Each company had a different tagline. Um, each company, as you can see, had a slightly different visual identity, different colors. You can't really tell from here. Um, and it was very targeted to businesses. Obviously, you can see in the creative, all the messaging is, is really geared towards businesses. What we started to do, and, and um, Adam mentioned a little bit of this earlier, is we wanted to understand what do our target consumers think about us, and, and businesses as well. What, what do they also see are the gaps in the marketplace? What are the things that our competitors um, not delivering on that our target consumers want and need? And what do they see as Nextel credibly delivering on? And so with that information, we started to craft a new identity, um, both visual and verbal, in terms of um, appealing to those, to those targets. And there were a couple of things that came out in the research. But most importantly, the main thing that people were telling us, businesses and consumers, was that we bring connection. And if you're familiar to, with Nextel, which being in the real estate world, you might be in, uh, when we were in the United States, we have a, a technology called push to talk. It's a walkie-talkie feature. And in Latin America, unlike in the United States, it's a huge status symbol, um, mostly because um, it's a postpaid product, meaning it's a monthly subscription, which shows that you have the credit to afford it. Um, but also, it provides this element of uh, instantaneous connection. You can talk to the people that you want to talk to right away, much faster and much cheaper than cellular. So this was the element that kind of resonated as, as we were doing this research that we wanted to capitalize on. It's also something that none of our competitors could really match. So that was the, um, the key message we wanted to, to get across. And with that, we created this new identity. Um, oops, whoopsie. Um, I'll let somebody put, plug that in. Uh, 
So while we're plugging it in, I'll just talk a little bit about the look. It's, it's much better. I mean, I'm biased, but you've got to say it's better. Um, it's orange. It's warm. It's friendly. The font size is uh, much more modern. And what we did, which you can see a little bit of, um, but there's a man there behind the little screen. And there are two X's or arrows that are framing him. And that is the X that's coming from the X in Nextel. But we call those our connectors. And essentially, that is the symbol that we want everybody in Latin America to identify with us. It, we, frame, we use this in all of our creative. It's in our signs. It's in our retail presence. It's in our corporate environments. And essentially, it frames an idea or a thought. It's a, it's a way to visually capture that idea of connection. The other thing we did, which um, seems simple but was ridiculously challenging, was we created one tagline in all of our countries. It's tu mundo ahora or tu mundo agora in Portuguese, which means your world now. That also really captures that idea of instant connection to the people that you want to be in contact with. Um, we had some backup colors, gray and um, a lighter gray and, and white. So that was the idea. And with that, we pitched that to the board. And, and they approved it. And then they gave me what I thought was an obscene amount of money and told me to go do it in 11 months. And of course, I have no idea how to do this. I'm a brand person. So Adam walks in and saves the day with Jones Lang LaSalle. And we, we really, I think we probably ideally should have approached this plan more sequentially, but we didn't have the luxury of time. So we tackled four key areas that were fairly disparate and did them at the same time. And the first area was we had that idea, the logo and the tagline, and that was it. We had nothing else. So we had to create all of the assets, all of the artworks, from business cards to signage to retail to, to the retail design um, to the creative photo images. Everything had to be created in terms of the artwork and the guidelines and exactly how much flexibility we were going to give our markets while still maintaining a sense of consistency. Whereas in the original identity, everything kind of looked different. We wanted to have that flexibility but still maintain the same brand image. The other thing that we had, the other challenge we had, was we were in a variety of different countries with different languages, and we needed to get this information to people quickly and easily. So we created a, um, an intranet, essentially a, like a Facebook page that was secure, that allowed people to easily access and their vendors the, the artwork as it became available in the language um, that they were speaking. So the second was the retail space. And before, I would say that what retail space we had really wasn't sales space. We used it for service and we used it for care, for customer care. So we needed to design a new retail space that brought the brand to life in an interactive way with consumers. Um, and we worked with Landor, our brand agency, to create this design. We started that in November and we finished the design in February of last year. It, it, was, a, it was a unique time because this was one of the first times our company has done something in a centralized fashion that is pushed down from corporate. And if you're familiar with Latin America, it's, um, a very, it's very collaborative. And we wanted to make sure that the identity and the retail footprint was really adapted and embraced by the local teams. So we thought it would be important to create um, a prototype event. So we did that in Toluca, Mexico, which is just outside of Mexico City, in a secure environment in a warehouse. And we created all of the new stores that they would be seeing. 
it allowed them to look at it, touch it, feel it, versus looking at a rendering on paper and, and really start to imagine how this would work in their local markets, how the brand would come to life in their market, and also to tweak it slightly if it wasn't going to work. So we had a lot of uh, rounds in terms of making the prototype reality. But because of that, it, it cost us some time. So we didn't actually start building out stores, I think, until May. Was right, May? Um, of last year, and we had to be complete by September. So we built out over 800 stores uh, in that time frame in five countries. So it was quite a challenge. Then, of course, um, you can have the stores and you can have the identity, and that's great, but people need to know about it and they need to understand what you're about. And since we were expanding our market and targeting a new segment, we needed to have a substantial advertising campaign to support that. We did a lot of analysis around the world to see what do the best-in-class rebrands have in common. And one of those things is a very dedicated advertising spend on top of your business-as-usual advertising. Anywhere from 2 to 5x is what they typically spend. And so we mirrored that. And we had a tremendous advertising campaign um, leveraging Havas Media in Latin America. And we essentially blanketed our country's orange for a period of time. And it was very helpful to introduce our new identity to these new segments and educate them on where they could find us, where were the retail footprints, since we hadn't had those previously. And then also, very importantly, as Julie mentioned, we wanted to engage our employees, not just educate them on what was happening, but really um, empower them and excite them to become brand champions. So at the same time, we had a very dedicated brand engagement um, in campaign with our employees. And how we wanted to, to do this was we wanted to have a little bit of fun with this because it's, branding is fun. The color is a lot better than what it was. It's exciting. So we couldn't show them the identity, but we used some elements of that. And we'd created an internal employee brand before, um, before uh, the launch. And that was uh, our world, or Nuestro Mundo. And essentially, like your world now, it, it played off that world element. And it, a lot of flexibility it would be our world connects, our world talks to you. And you would start to see that manifest in all of our countries uh, probably about three to four months in terms of um, internal graphics on the walls, uh, gifts that would be dropped off at employees' desks, email communications. We started to cascade that message down uh, about three months prior, depending on level and pushing that down so that every employee started to uh, really understand that something big was happening for our company. It was the first time. Um, and it was, you know, that they were part of this. This was not just something that was happening externally. And it culminated in what we um, did was a, a satellite broadcast, a live satellite broadcast in all of our countries, including the United States, where we invited all the employees to go to a local facility where there was a satellite, satellite hookup. And we essentially had like an Oprah Winfrey show. It was celebrating everything. And what the goal of it was was to make that sales representative in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, understand that he's not just part of his community. He's part of a much larger thing. He's part of a united community that's all going through this at the same time to really get that excitement up. Um, and it, it was a really exciting time, very unique. This is um, our new stores, I mean, our new corporate environments. On the left is um, Mexico. And on the right is Brazil. Um, so you can see that there's flexibility there depending on the environment, but it all has the same look and feel. And then these are our retail stores. So as I mentioned, we really didn't have them. And we needed to start to build them out. And 
we wanted to um, expand the, the retail capillarity and also align it with that whole brand strategy in an interactive way so the consumer felt engaged and connected with our company. Uh, we did that in a variety of different ways. Uh, the first was uh, we had full service stores that prior to that, prior to our launch, were really more like care centers. We expanded that with a retail presence in all of those stores. We built out premium stores in malls, and then we also redesigned all of our kiosks and, and beefed up a lot of the kiosks as well throughout um, our properties. And then we created retail graphics. And we wanted to, again, allow for flexibility here, but to keep that same look and feel, that same consistency. You can see that in the boxes and the merchandising. And it's a modular system, so things can move around depending on the environment or if there's a promotion. But it still all has that same look and feel. And you can see that the connector is, is framing in the, in the backdrop of the store itself, as well as our marketing materials. So it was a great, um, great experience, but not without its challenges. And I was really surprised at a lot of the things we didn't know as a company. The first was that we didn't have any retail site list. Um, it didn't exist. And that's a little bit surprising because you know, you'd think you know where your stores are, but you don't. Um, <laughs> so um, you know, not only did they not know location, they didn't know, for the, for the stores that they did have locations on, they didn't have any sales performance on it. And they had no um, strategy in terms of uh, is this a site that's strategically important to us and for what reason? So we literally had to go and build that from scratch. We sent out auditors throughout our countries to find these locations, um, which I know sounds ridiculous, but, but we did. Um, and so we, we had that issue. And then indirect channel in Latin America, um, again, if you're not familiar, is um, what, what I like to say fluid. Um, and some are very informal, we'll just say that. Uh, some are the big box indirect stores that we have here, but a lot of them are um, there today, gone tomorrow, literally. Um, they may be on one street, they may be on another, they may be selling phones out of their car, um, and they probably are working in cash. Um, so you can take that for, for what it is. And we really had to understand um, how, are we gonna, how are we gonna control the quality of this so that we have one brand experience, but also to be realistic on costs. So how we did it was we basically went up to the master dealers and we prioritized the dealers that we were going to be supporting. And if those dealers uh, wanted to rebrand, which of course they would want to, they needed to get the, um, the materials from, from certain places. It needed to be checked through us. And we would only pay for it after we had audited those sites. So uh, that was one way to control it. And we're just about finished at this point now. And, and I should say, actually, um, by the end of this project, we will have over 3,000 corporate and retail sites that will be um, rebranded, and, and that's in, um, we're, we're still doing the secondary cities now, so that's been in a little bit over a year. Um, the third thing that I wanted to talk about, which is, it's, it's kind of two things, and it, it was the first time our company did something corporate-wide, pushed down from corporate, um, that went to the markets, and this was pretty radical for us because we, all of our properties, as I said, were, had operated fairly autonomously. And then there is the element of um, culture and language. Obviously, the language is, is just uh, Spanish, Portuguese, and English, which is always a problem. But the cultural differences are more nuanced. And we, we really needed to, um, when we started this, we had such a short time frame. We quickly established a process for communication, an implementation plan. 
and an escalation plan. And it was fairly rigid in terms of how we would move forward because we needed to make sure we managed costs and, and hit the timeline that we needed to. In that, doing that, um, one of the things that we didn't account for early on was the need for collaboration in Latin America, the need to feel like your voice is heard and that you had an opinion and it, it, was, it was discussed. And it, we really kind of pushed things down in the beginning. We really, we had to take a step back after a while to kind of let that collaboration gel so that people really functioned as a team. And once we did that, it worked much more smoothly. Uh, and then uh, the other thing is, we, as I said, I'm not a real estate person, and we clearly don't have a good handle on all the real estate locations. We don't have an organized real estate department. We, and the ones that, the people that were doing it in different markets had varying levels of sophistication and knowledge about this process. So we really relied a lot on um, JLL to help us kind of organize that with their local, with their local counterparts. Um, and then finally, it was um, you know, fast and furious in 11 months. So then the other thing that we did that I think is important to mention is, you know, it was a great experience, everything was orange, it looks much better, but did it really work? And we measured it both internally against our employees and also externally against the market. And, and it did work. Um, so our goal was to um, increase brand awareness amongst our targets and also to educate and inform and excite our employees to become brand champions. And we found that um, this really was successful. We measured for employees the, the pulse of the employees and the inherent understanding of employees about our brand prior to launch and then just after launch. And you can see that 92% of employees stated they, that they approved of the new brand identity versus 78% um, prior to the launch. And they also began to understand very clearly that this brand meant something more than just orange. It meant that we were connecting in a unique way to our targets. The other element that we saw was that there was significant improvement in um, employees stating that they um, would recommend this as a place to work. That went up to 94% versus 81%. Uh, and also that Nextel is a desirable brand. That also increased significantly. And then against our outs outside, against our uh, targets, brand awareness increased um, about 32 points, percentage points. Um, among our high-value consumers to 74%. I'll, I'll have you know that that sounds great, and I was very happy about it, but it still lags behind the competition. Um, and that is not super surprising to us because we've always been targeting businesses. But we are seeing movement in that area. And then brand, unaided brand awareness um, increased 27 percentage points um, in businesses to 82%, which is very significant. Consideration increased among consumers, but not significantly. We would expect it to take longer than, um, than where, where we are now, considering we are new in that space. And, but consideration increased among target businesses by 15 percentage points to 67%. And now we're the market leader um, in our markets. And, and I should tell you that um, we are very small compared to our competitors, and we only spend about one-fifth of the advertising that they spend. So we're very proud of that, that number as well. And so now I am going to turn it over to Alexis Katz, who's the principal design manager for P&G. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's good to be here. Good morning. Good afternoon. Um, Julie said a lot <laughs> of, of kind of where P&G was, I would say, about eight years ago or so. Um, and actually, if you roam the halls of a bunch of our sites, you'll still see that same exact hallway. So, um, you know, 
the more global the company is, the more its challenges are in terms of keeping things, um, you know, a central nervous system in terms of design and execution. Um, so thank you for saying so much. I can just show pictures now. Um, I just wanted to ask for a show of hands if any of you um, have worked with PNG or know about our culture. Mm, okay, so I'm seeing like 20%. Um, uh, probably, you know, a very unique part of PNG's culture that is not around much, you know, with, with a lot of other corporations anymore is that it's a promote from within culture. So. Um, when you're hired right out of school, uh, you do expect to stay for hopefully the duration of your career. Um, and with Promote From Within comes, you know, the company is investing very heartily in the person that it hires. It's very competitive to get in. And in return, the person who's hired invests very heavily in um, getting a sense of pride and, you know, a sense of worth in their career out of P&G. So um, that creates a really interesting dynamic with site design. Um, it, so that there are many dynamics with, with that. But with site design, um, generally, a person will take an assignment for three or four years and move to a different site. You know, maybe they'll be transferred from Singapore to Mumbai or Geneva. And um, so in that person's mind, they're, they're still within PNG, but they're in a completely new role. Um, so they just, you know, hop around for the, for the career. And it gives people a real sense of um, a comfort level in saying what they want. Because no matter what, they're still at P&G. And they have the reference of the site they were on beforehand, the site they're going to, the site they wish they had been placed at. Um, so you get a, an employee population that's extremely vocal about what it wants. Um, whether or not they have any familiarity with design, um, whether or not they are on board, you know, completely with some of the new technologies we need to place on our sites, they have opinions. Um, so when I took my role, what I found was that um, design by committee was really the MO. Um, I'll get to more of that later, but um, I did want to share with you these are um, some photographs of our Ivorydale Technical Center, which is where synthetic suds were invented. Um, we are renovating that site now. And um, as we started the renovation, we went through, you know, piles and piles of archival photos. Um, and what's so nice about these is that they are all from different eras. Um, and even now in the same building, you have people, you know, if you open any given door of a laboratory, you're going to find people in there. They might look a little different. The labs look different, but they're doing the same thing. So a building at PNG can take on a very long history and have a great story behind it, especially when some of the most notable inventions in manufacturing have taken place there. Um, people have a very strong sense of pride about where they work if they work on a site that is, in particular, of historic relevance. Um, so, when, so when I took my role, um, and actually still we have design by committee, but not as much, uh, one of the uh, missives that I got from uh, real estate leadership and marketing and design and ER, uh, PR leadership, we call it ER, uh, was, you know, how can we um, 
reframe branding so that people understand that branding is not just you know, a sticker on a wall or a poster that you put on a tripod in a hallway um, you know, or, or some kind of arts and crafts project that someone decides to do at their desk. Um, branding is actually a, a holistic experience. It's interior design, graphics, et cetera. Um, I was also asked to you know, work with my real estate teams. Um, and there's a few of you here in JLL who work with us and JLL folks um, who run all our facilities to um, do our best at streamlining the decision-making process wherever possible, um, given that uh, it can get very difficult, especially with a subjective topic such as design, uh, to have 12 people in a room agreeing on you know, a color palette. Uh, that just doesn't work. So we had to find a way to centralize that. Um, and of course, best value. Um, best value is not lost on designers. Um, it's more about how do we teach people who may not be in the design field that you can have your cake and eat it too. So you can, it's a matter of saying, you know, we have a high visibility site in Cincinnati. We're going to prioritize spend on that site. You know, 20 people who sit in a part of Maryland where no one ever goes, we may not spend the money on that, uh, the public spaces of that site that we're going to spend in Cincinnati. So tiering, um, making choices, um, making sure that where we need to show up very, very well, we do making sure that we never shortchange the employee who works on the 20-person site in Maryland. Um, we also are obligated to do, that's actually more of a workplace issue, to make sure that from a technology perspective they have everything they need. Um, but the, the choices have to happen. We know that. Um, we can't make everything look like the Taj Mahal. Um, so, and bucket three of my work is um, taking the new visual identity that we are in the process of creating and turning it into a three-dimensional experience. Um, and with that, creating a toolbox and a style guide that can be deployed around the world so that uh, people see what we're supposed to look like. Um, so we have consistency everywhere. Um, and I, I can't overstate the value of consistency. <laughs> um, and I use the Starbucks example with a lot of people who I work with around the world. Um, when you walk into a Starbucks anywhere, you know exactly where you are. And it's not only the aesthetics, it's the, the smell, it's the people behind the counter, it's the nomenclature that they have for their drinks. And um, that creates um, a, a patriotism for the brand. Um, and similarly, that is where we need to go with our sites. Obviously, there's hard points and soft points. Every site shouldn't look like a cookie cutter. Um, and it has to take on the expressiveness of the local you know, surroundings, et cetera. But creating a set of principles that make sure people understand that we are PNG um, has been just very critical. Um, and actually, it saves money. It is best value to um, have standardized elements. So um, when I started the reframing branding part of my discussion, of, of my job, um, I was encountering a lot of things that looked like this. So um, PNGers tended to think that branding was you know, stickers on a wall, that it's a graphic design 
Um, you know, on the left side, you can see, you know, they'll, they'll put up a very an inspirational, motivational word on a giant poster, and then, you know, the photograph of someone playing piano, because to play piano well, you have to have discipline. Um, and then, you know, you look at all the furniture in there, it doesn't match, and the lighting's awful, there's no windows. Um, so, you know, that was lesson number one, was that's not good branding, that's a sticker on a wall. Um, and I have to constantly tell people that there is a difference. Um, on the right side, you know, that's a misuse of our visual identity. So, um, the, the, the phases of the moon do not go vertically. Um, and, you know, sometimes you find them in polka dots or in all sorts of crazy configurations. Um, and this is because, again, it does go back to pride of place. People who work on our sites do feel incredibly proud. They may not be great designers and they probably shouldn't be executing, but they get excited to do this stuff and it means a lot to them. Um, so we never want to remove that sense of empowerment. Um, we just want to give them the tools to do it right. Um, okay, so trying to educate folks on, you know, what branding is, is also challenging because it, it means that they have to entrust you with everything, you know, like, oh, if you want to redo this, you really have to redo this. Um, this is our Panama site, and this is one of our pilots. Um, we don't have our new visual identity yet, so actually there are going to be even more changes once, once we get our new visual identity out there. Um, but this is kind of middle range of, of new thinking. Um, and you can see on the left, um, we've started to take quotes of our past leaders, um, some really amazing speeches that we found in the archives, blow those up, put them on the wall. Um, we've got a whole new set of photography of our, our who, our consumer. Um, you know, some components to these lobbies that are really critical now are making sure we have our history, making sure we're always referencing our consumer, making sure we're always referencing local flavor. So this is Panama. We had to tweak our palette with colors and you know, local patterns. We have Argentinian patterns and all of the Latin American indigenous patterns in different places on the site. Um, so trying to show them you know, this is what the future will be. It's not just stickers. Um, and then making sure we can try to get it to execution as closely as possible to the conceptual image that was approved by the local business leader. Um, which is really, really hard. <laughs> uh, and this was really hard to do. Um, even this project, which turned out so much better than many that I see, um, was fraught with challenges because of the, the very complicated process from conceptual idea to getting it to the right architecture firm, to getting it to the PMs who will understand the importance of the details, to getting it you know, made in different parts of the world, shipped, passed through customs, making sure we install it all. I mean, all of the, the, the process and the steps are, you have to have people who really know how to do what they do to make sure execution looks like the concept. Um, here's another example of, well, this is the actual building that is where the images that I showed in the beginning, the old laboratory, this is ITC. Um, and we've 
done a renovation of ITC. It's a preliminary renovation. There are more to come. Um, but the building was, is really old. It's the 1905 building. And everyone was working in offices that were fully walled and had doors. So it looked like a prison. Um, and the scientists would go in their little office and shut the door. And it was like as big as this box. So uh, a decision had been made to make a huge investment in the site. It is a major um, R&D site. It's the headquarters of Fabricare R&D. Um, and when we first saw what this intervention was going to look like, you know, aside from taking down all the walls and creating an open office environment, in terms of public space, uh, when we first saw this, we were like, hmm, this doesn't feel as if it's saying something about what goes on in the building. Um, or as if it's really talking about, you know, to your point, optimism. What, what are we expressing? We are optimists. We're passionate about our jobs. We're passionate about uh, invention and innovation. Um, we weren't feeling it when we saw this. So um, we decided to redesign it. Um, and the idea was, you know, how do you take this idea of fabric? What are we going to do to talk about fabric? Um, and this came from, from two things. One was we wanted to try to find a way to express fabric blowing in the wind. Um, and, you know, something very ethereal and light as a counterpoint to this really heavy kind of pseudo-Romanesque building. Um, so that it didn't look like we were copying the building. We wanted it to be distinctly different. Um, and then what kind of interesting technologies can we use to do that? So uh, we looked into digital printed frit on glazing, uh, which is what we ended up using. And um, I'm happy to say that uh, while this isn't the best picture, the facade actually, you know, thanks to everyone who had great expertise and care and an investment in the project, the facade ended up looking like it was supposed to. Um, and people are very excited by it. You know, they don't always know what it is. They're like, what is that pattern? I don't get it. <laughs> but then they get really excited when they hear what it is. And from the inside, it's actually a beautiful space and really fun to experience. So um, that's a much more dramatic and expensive example of, of branding not being a sticker. Um, but but it, is, it is where we're going. Um, so back to the, the process, the difficult process. Um, and everyone has these difficult processes. It's not like we're alone. Uh, in fact, I'm very proud of how much partnership I routinely get from um, all of my uh, functional friends. So real estate, marketing, everyone wants it to be better. Um, but some things have to be untangled first. So um, approval processes, making sure, you know, if we have to centralize approval processes. It's something we're working on now. Um, currently, the approval process is that the local business leader in a region approves design. That makes design very difficult to sell. Um, defining best value in a design context, which is what I talked about before, making sure that um, it's not just about, you know, if you have a bucket of money that needs to shrink, well, let's do something holistic with that money. Let's not spread it thin over 30 sites. You know, it's, it's about choices uh, for great design. Um, functional capability. Again, making sure that, you know, we don't have an R&D scientist designing a site because they're not a designer. Um, that 
gives us problems. Um, external resources and agencies, we're creating a new roster of agencies where we feel that their capability can straddle architectural design and interiors all the way through brand expression, uh, more traditional brand expression, pack design, retail design, um, so that we know when we give them the job, they have the capability to do a bunch of things, not just architecture. Um, and toolboxes and style guides, which are really kind of the key tool to everything, because um, there's only one of me. So uh, there are 140 sites, I think, or I don't know, more or less, somewhere in that range, probably less. But um, that's a lot. Um, so these people need very thorough guidelines to get them to where they need to be. Our upcoming toolbox is uh, very instructive, <laughs> and I think will make people's lives easier. So, um, and then just to talk a, a bit about the new vision, um, similar to the, the Coca-Cola um, presentation, uh, we have a purpose, and this is our purpose statement. Um, the reason I put this here is that it does prioritize um, the prosperity of PNG's people. And that's really important. Um, it goes back to promoting from within. It goes back to pride of place. Um, the fact that we are in the mission statement of the company, um, it's a virtuous cycle. So I wanted to share that. Um, this is the new lobby at Ivorydale. So um, again, some of the components that you saw in the Panama image. Um, on the very back wall, you can't really see it clearly in here, but those are um, that's a, a giant mural of um, a wedding in Mexico, uh, women wearing Mexican wedding dresses. And it's you know, diaphanous. It kind of um, relates to the image on the front of the building. Um, you know, every lobby will now have a version of the same reception desk. Every lobby will now have um, you know, a feature wall for our product. In this case, there are portholes that are meant to look like washing machines because when you walk into this building, there's thousands of washing machines washing laundry. So, um, you know, the portholes, you look through them and you see our product displayed in a retail way. Um, this is a, oh, and, but, you know, sorry, going back to uh, principles behind the new vision, holistic interiors. I'm sure I've said that enough. Um, again, this is like a typical cafeteria. This is, happens to be in Singapore in a new site that we're building. Um, leadership quotes on the walls, silhouettes of our products on the tables. Um, I don't know if you can see the back wall, but that's actually um, a riff of a Singaporean batik pattern, the traditional batik that you see on the Singapore Airlines girls and stuff like that. We've actually put silhouettes of our bottles and products in that pattern. Um, when we have dedicated sites that are for only one brand or group of businesses related, you know, organization, I should say, um, such as Gillette, which is this site, Mel Grooming. Um, we take a little bit of a different approach. So this is an aspirational photo. This is not your typical consumer. Um, but, you know, the lobby takes on a tone and a different palette that's more appropriate for male grooming. Uh, we do the same with female beauty. Um, as long as the site is dedicated, um, it can have a palette that's slightly different and subject matter in the photography that's different. Same with fabric hair, actually. Um, and
and then also uh, vision essential storytelling. Uh, we have an incredible archives, and we like to try to find ways now to tell the stories of our brand's history. Um, Gillette was the pilot archive. We built a heritage wall that was um, really meaningful for Gillette heritage employees um, because you know PNG bought Gillette. Um, there are a great number of heritage employees around who um, I think once we introduce this wall and a few other um, efforts for heritage employees, they finally got back this sense of place that they may have um, been missing in the, the transition of the acquisition. So um, making sure people see the history of the company or notable um, artifacts and inventions on a daily basis is has turned out to be wonderful. I mean, I don't have data on this wall, but everyone loves it. It has the first Gillette razor ever made um, for King Gillette, uh, which we found in a box. And um, it has just some of the, you know, the, the tube of, of shaving cream that they took on Apollo 11. Like, there's all sorts of incredible things that are in the Gillette archives that pr previously we never shared. Um, so this has become now a staple when we open a new site we always include a heritage story, um, which goes from past all the way through to present. We show our new commercials, we show our new products. It's a living wall. And then most importantly, our consumer. Um, we're going through right now a new, a new uh, series of photography principles, but our consumer is the core of our purpose. Um, so the consumer is, from a pictorial perspective, the thing that we show. We don't show photos of our brands um, or our products. Very rarely do we show photographs of aspirational models like at Gillette. Um, the priority is our consumer uh, in their environment. So days, day in the life of our consumer. Our, the bottom would be our high frequency shopper consumer. The top would be a Western European consumer. Always a reminder on our walls of who our consumer is. And then local flavor. So this is just a, a nice little shot of um, the back wall in our new Panamanian headquarters. Um, we hired a local tribe uh, called the Cuna Indians to make this giant tapestry, which is a very common type of tapestry that you see when you go to Panama. Um, so I think it's the biggest mola ever. It's called a mola. Um, it, it's like a 25-foot-long mola. But um, it's beautifully made, and they were extremely thrilled to do it. And um, the employees are very thrilled to have it. Uh, you can see the little PNG bottles floating around inside that pattern. It took a very long time. It took six months to make it. But we've now used that to line the back wall um, behind the reception when you enter the headquarters there. Um, and I just I wanted to include that as, just as the last slide because um, it's a recent project, and it has made people very happy. So thank you. So um, we wanted to thank everyone for joining us today. We are going to do a quick Q&A, but we do recognize that we've run a little long. So if you do need to escape now, this is your chance to go. <laughs> If there's one message you do take away from this, I hope that you realize anyone who intersects at brand and marketing is ridiculously good looking. 
um, but also that it's an incredibly exciting field. So I do think that Julie uh, from Coca-Cola may have to step out and grab her car, not sure. But we do want to do a Q&A, so if people are interested in staying and do have the time to participate, feel free. Otherwise, you have 30 seconds to make a quick escape stage left. As we uh, do the Q&A, there'll be a microphone out there, so raise your hand and feel free. But I wanted to kick off the Q&A. I thought something very interesting, particularly about both of your presentations, was the global aspect. And one of the first questions I have, you know, we, we know the flavor, we know the positioning, we know the challenges with introducing brand through real estate within the United States. Do you feel there's certain markets or certain areas uh, that react to it differently, both positively and negatively, from your guys' global experience? And can you talk to that? So um, from a Latin American perspective, um, we know that's true. Uh, you'll see anywhere between a 10 to 15% increase in an answer for a Latin American versus a US person. So um, they also. They're, they're much more positive, they're much more optimistic, they're more emotional, and they, they feel a, a, it's very important to be personally connected to a brand to generate that loyalty. So that's definitely true for our market. Okay. Anyone else have a comment on, uh, Julie, the question was, globally, do, uh, do people respond differently to brand intersecting with real estate versus just a US perspective? And I think so. It's, it's interesting. Um, around the world for us, people think the Coke brand is, grew up in their country. They don't think that Coca-Cola is American. They think, so like in India, they think, you know, well, it's, it's our brand in India. It's an Indian brand. So, so we have to be very careful. We're not doing things that are too US-centric. I mean, even our world headquarters, our head of design, and he, he oversees design standards for vending machines and merchandise and packaging and everything. And he says, Julie, please, please, please. And our, even our world headquarters, we cannot be US centric. We can't be American centric. Um, we've got to appeal to everybody. So yeah, I think so. We gotta, we gotta be cognizant of that. Any questions from the audience? I just have, uh, uh, one more if we see if someone uh, musters up the courage here to be our first speaker. Um, we talked a lot about the, the culture and design being a product of either from the standpoint of can we make our insides match our outsides. But we also talked a lot about how the design has changed. So it's the proverbial question, the chicken or the egg. What comes first or what should come first? Or how do you, how do you balance design and culture and them responding and driving each other? Um, well, culture is the kind of defining thing. Um, I mean, design comes from it. So I don't even know if it's a balance. I think one launches the other. Um, I completely agree. You've got, you've got to define where you want your culture to go and, and then we did a lot of cultural work with IDEO before we started into any design work. And so uh, really looking at our culture today, what's good, what's bad, what's ugly, and I even took the good and the bad and the ugly stuff to the chairman and said, we opened the hood and this is what we got and here's, here's where we want culture to go. And then after we got that settled, 
then work on some design principles that will drive the needle you want to move. Perfect. Great, great. Hi, uh, Stuart Bard from HOK. Okay, um, this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of que question, slightly tangential to what you were talking about. But what triggered it was one of the central notions that you were talking about here is the globalization of the visual experience and the design experience. And that's a very tough thing to do in companies, particularly where there's a history of being somewhat balkanized and a great deal of regional independence. And there were a couple of things that particularly Mary Francis and uh, Melissa said which, which trigger this, which uh, difficulty, for example, just getting your hands around the retail portfolio. What have we got? Where is it? What does it cost? You know, what does it look like? And on the other side, also uh, trying to re-engineer things like the approval process. So, you know, those are all components of any kind of a global initiative. And my question is, um, was there any, give, any thought given to a global real estate technology platform that could help you enable that and get your hands around it? Because, you know, I'm not a design guy. I'm a technology guy. So um, that's, you know, that's the way I think about the world. But um, was there any component of that in either of those initiatives? Um, for our initiative, yes. Um, Joan Lang LaSalle created one for us. Um, and it essentially was a catalog of every retail environment we had, every piece of material that went in there. And in addition, um, because we were challenged and so decentralized and we didn't have, we actually didn't even have a way to automatically check uh, but finances. So in Brazil, we, it was a manual process to upload it to headquarters. So we used Jones Lang LaSalle and we established a process whereby if uh, a local market wanted to get credit or not be charged for it in their business as usual budget, they would have to go through Jones Lang LaSalle to have that tie. It was very important. I, I think... Um, that was a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in terms of um, you know, assistance from other... Well, changing the approval process, first of all, is... Uh, it comes from the top. So I do go begging. And I think, um, I, I think at this point, we've had, um, there is consensus that, that approvals you know, for design should go through our global design officer, especially for extremely high visibility sites. And um, any sort of workplace approvals that are either workplace design or financial or IT based go through our real estate director. Um, and that is, it's, it's a new thing, but it is really going to empower consistency. So we're, we're pretty excited. Sure. Any other questions from the audience? Or? Sure. We're here. Well, let's do the front of the well, Microphone's going that way. We'll get you next. Real quick about back to the culture question, uh, particularly at, at Coca-Cola. I'm wondering because um, I think uh, in order to drive a lot of these programs, it comes from the top, like Alexis just said. But uh, when it comes to who owns culture in a company, it's usually comes from the CEO, right, or the chairman. It, but to get them to focus on something like this can't be easy. Any no. <laughs> stories about how you did that? Because it sounds like you've gotten it. Yeah, it's it's not it's not easy, and I don't think we. I think. A lot of the culture does get set forth by the chairman, but, but certainly the chairman doesn't 
not necessarily always the one reinforcing it every day, right? So um, a lot of it is getting, you know, we spend a lot of time getting HR kind of in the boat because, I mean, they own a lot of parts of the culture. I mean, we're even looking at, um, you know, commuting. I even had a conversation with the chairman about, you know, we need to make life easier for how our employees get to work. It's not just about once you are, all, are on campus. That's part of the experience and uh, the happiness factor as well. And so, I mean, we're even looking at trying to adopt some things that are done on the West Coast, Google, Facebook, Visa, et cetera, that in terms of commuting options that aren't happening on the Bicycles. East Coast much at all. I well, recommend no, private helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> well, more, how you, more about how you get from the suburbs into ah, work okay. um, and making that easier because you can't, you can't change city government or state government overnight on that stuff. So I had that conversation with the chairman. He says, he says of course, he doesn't have an issue getting to work, and, and he travels 90% of the time. Our chairman is, is on an airplane. I think he's in, a, in Atlanta, I'm going to say 20 days a year. So how can he do much about culture sitting at, he, I mean, he lives in an airplane. He has a bedroom in an airplane. He lives on an airplane, goes around the world all the time. So, um, so we, you know, we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time working the whole culture thing and pushing, pushing the limits on a lot of stuff and things that we've never thought about that nobody else has thought about. And, you know, getting HR in the boat and CFO in the boat and marketing in the boat. So um, it's happening on all, all sides. I think I have a, we have about 120 SMEs around the country, company, subject matter experts around the company that are on our extended team that we are constantly tapping into to get more people in the boat on where we're trying to go. So I, you know, we're we're thinking about this. I use this a lot with the team that we call this more. A, it's more of a political campaign than a, um, uh, you know, you know, more than a typical facilities approach. And we've got to get one employee at a time, one vote at a time, one drink at a time, you know, one everything at a time. I mean, why was why was the I say to them why was the Barack Obama campaign just the campaign so successful. You look, at, you look at political campaigns over time, right? And why was that successful? Because they made it easy for people to feel like one by one they made a difference. When they, if they got involved in that campaign, give a dollar, get involved, do this one thing. And so I think that's why that campaign works so well because when you look at the structure of a political campaign, it's very similar politician to politician. They go out and speak. They go city to city. They hug a lot of babies. They do this and this, and it's all the same structure, but, the, but there was a different element there. So we use that as a model to say this is about running a political campaign to get every single person one vote at a time. Then it, it, you know, we can't build it and expect that they're going to come. As a practice, we also have certain workshop tools and... Uh, presentation techniques to engage C-suite very proactively, very quickly. It was very closely related. I just, I, I so appreciate you addressing this idea of creating those brand ambassadors within your organization. Um, I think everyone really addressed that in some way to identify that local culture. Um, 
So I think you answered a lot of it already. <laughs> but but how important that really is to have each individual feel a connection to their company, otherwise it will fail. So creating those systems. So thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you for those of you who stayed. And thank you again to our speakers. Fill out your surveys. We want your feedback. Thanks. <laughs>